All right, let me pray, and uh, we'll, we'll dive into what we have planned today. God, thank you so much for uh, being a great and awesome God who far surpasses our ability to understand or comprehend or wrap our minds around, and that is a glorious truth because we know that we are not God, and so we can entrust ourselves to someone far greater than we are. God, I pray that as we turn our attention to discuss how to counsel our own hearts, how to counsel one another well in a way that is in keeping with and aims at your glory, that you would bless this time and that what I teach over the next several moments would be clear, that it would resonate with the hearts of your people, and that you would be glorified in it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, this is uh, installment number three of doxological counseling, instructing worshipers to the praise and glory of God. And if you have not listened to the previous two lessons, I would encourage you to uh, do that when you get an opportunity to get a little bit more context about where we're going in this series and where we find ourselves today. It would be helpful if you uh, hear those two. Nevertheless, I think that today will be helpful, hopefully, if this is the first lesson that you're hearing. And before I uh, begin discussing what we have planned today, the gospel and the role of the gospel in worship and counseling for the sake of, of worship, I want to really begin with uh, giving two practical examples in my own experience of counseling when what I'm encouraging you all to uh, adopt as a view of counseling actually worked itself out in my own experience. And when uh, my own attempts to counsel doxologically, counsel in a way that aimed at the glory of God and put the glory of God in front of people who needed counseling, when uh, two different instances, one when that resulted in a good counseling outcome for the counselee, and another instance when that resulted in a bad outcome for the counselee. Um, I like to think that both times the counseling was a success, uh, but as, as Tom likes to say, the play was a success, the audience was a failure. Hopefully that was, uh, that's always the case when we're giving biblical instruction. Uh, God's word has never failed, ever. Um, it's always the, the recipients when we either receive it well or don't receive it well. And so... In example number one, uh, as we're talking about having this big view of God, a, a view of counseling, helping people who have problems, <laughs> we want to give them answers. When we have a big view of God and we make the glory of God, God's honor, God's praise, the worship of God primary in our counseling, uh, the, this first example when I sought to do that there was a, a student who actually was struggling with insomnia, is the technical word. The student couldn't sleep. And I was involved with this family. 
we sat down together with the family, me, this family, and the student, and just wanted to hear a little bit about what the problem was, what the trouble was with uh, him sleeping. And spent some time just listening, uh, what we would call data gathering and counseling, uh, getting more information, hearing about sleep habits, work habits, diet, just different normal information. Um, and when we started to turn a corner in counseling to where I thought, okay, I've gotten enough information, uh, we talked about your situation, ways that you're responding, things that you're thinking, things that you're feeling, uh, what you're desiring. And I stopped and asked him, tell me in the moments when you cannot sleep, on those nights when you just find yourself awake, not being able to sleep, what do you want most in those moments? And he thought about it. And the reason I asked that question is because I'm trying to find out what is his chief aim. And I already know in my mind what God is aiming at for this believer in all things that we've been talking about, right? What is God aiming at in all things? His glory. Yeah. And so I want to know if he's on the same agenda with God when he can't sleep. Because really that will reveal what's being worshipped. And uh, this student just said, I think in those moments I just want to go to sleep more than anything else. And as we talked more, uh, and even in the information I was getting beforehand, it was obvious, yeah. You can't sleep. What you want most is to sleep. And because you want something which is sleep most, and it's escaping you in this moment, you're fearful then that you can't have what you want and what that's going to do to you. You have plans tomorrow that are now thwarted because you can't sleep, and really all you want to do is sleep so you can have a productive day tomorrow and you can carry out whatever plans you have, and now all of these anxious thoughts and fears are coming to mind because you can't get to sleep. And all I really want God most is to sleep. Well, in this instance, I asked the student, do you think God wants something more than for you to sleep? And so we talked about how God's aim for him, the chief end for him, for his life, even in those moments when sleep escaped him, was not sleep. That was not God's highest end for him. Even in that moment, God's highest aim for him was his own glory. That even whether you can sleep or not, make it your aim to glorify God. And so from, from there, we actually just spent the next several, uh, you know, maybe an hour or so brainstorming of, let's say God sovereignly, providentially decides you're not going to sleep one night. What, how are you going to make it your aim to glorify God? And we talked about Second uh, Corinthians five nine, I believe. Uh, whether we're at home or away, we make it our ambition to glor- or to please God. Um, Philippians four uh, four to eight talk about what to do with your mind. And so we just brainstorm: if you can't sleep, what are you going to do instead? How are you going to glorify God? Since that is God's highest aim for you. And praise God, <laughs> He was ready to hear that eager to obey God's word, and he never had a problem sleeping again. Uh, And so that was an instance in which just having the glory of God put front and center in counseling proved helpful. And so 
when he had, if he had trouble sleeping, he was going to make it his aim to glorify God. And when he actually changed what he was worshiping, he didn't find any more trouble sleeping. And in a different example, with a different outcome, I was counseling a, a married couple, and I had been meeting with the husband uh, for a couple months, and uh, we had been talking about these things, lots of, of other work to do. Um, I've, Tom has found the same thing. It's easy to counsel in Grace, within Grace Bible Church. People are hearing the same teaching, and it's, you know, the, the path is already prepared to bring God's word in a certain way. Um, when opportunities come from outside the body, it's a little different. And so had a lot of uh, legwork to do there and, and undoing wrong thinking and wrong theology. And anyway, we finally uh, brought the wife into counseling. And when I sat with both of them, this, is, this will be the short story. When I sat with both of them and listened to them and what their diagnosis of their problems were, I, clearly it was the other person, uh, I asked both of them after listening for a while, same question, what do you want most out of your marriage? What would please you most in this situation? Um, frankly, the guy wasn't a very good husband. <laughs> but both of them, neither of them thought the glory of God. And so we went to Ecclesiastes, the last verses in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. Chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. You actually don't exist to be made happy by your husband, ma'am. And sir, you don't actually exist to be made happy by your wife. You both exist, whether you have a good husband or a good wife or not, you exist to fear and obey God. That's how Solomon outlines those that one purpose for which man exists. And almost before the words were out of my mouth, when she hears me framing up what her desire should be, she burst into tears and went on a several-minute tirade about how if this is what God intended for her and if God got most glory out of her suffering in this marriage, she was out of here. She was not going to worship God. She was going to turn away from Christianity and leave her husband. Um, And as you can imagine, counseling couldn't really go much further than that Um, because God's aim in this is not for me to fix your husband. It's not even that you have a better husband, but it's that you worship God. And uh, unfortunately, uh, she opted out of counseling and, and refused to be one. So um, those are just two instances, and I can't really think of a, a many counseling instances when I haven't sought to put the glory of God first, front, and center. Um, because the glory of God, since it's God's agenda in counseling, it should really set the agenda for us in counseling, for our own hearts, when we have to bring instruction to ourselves from God's word, as well as to to others. And so those are two examples when uh, when I've sought to practice, practice the very things that I'm, I'm teaching you guys. Today, just where we left off, we're going to pick up where we left off last week, and that was with the gospel being the pinnacle way that God has sought his own glory. 
God is after his own glory in absolutely everything he does from creation to everything that's followed. And the gospel is the primary means among all of the ways that God has sought to glorify himself and elicit worship from us. The gospel is the primary way that he has done that. Uh, What we didn't talk much about last week, uh, the father engineered the gospel for worship. The son endured the gospel, the cross for worship. And the spirit empowered the cross or the gospel for the sake of worship. Um, There's lots more to say there. We unfortunately don't have a ton of time. Uh, to stay there. Hebrews 9, uh, 14 is a great passage. If, if you're looking for all of that truth in a single passage, the whole Trinity is involved in the gospel in Hebrews 9, 14, uh, where God the Son is offering himself up, that's an act of worship, so that worshipers would serve God, that's the Father receiving worship, and the Spirit is the one who is sustaining Christ in those moments, to offer himself up as a blameless sacrifice on the cross. So the Spirit is actually enabling Christ to worship God the Father for the sake of God the Father receiving worship. And so you see the whole Trinity is adamantly pursuing the worship of God, specifically in the gospel. And in counseling, the gospel, uh, we need to know how to hold this message. This message that God has accomplished and propagated through men around the world is the chief end by which he intends to be glorified. And so we need to know how we should think about the gospel in counseling. And so this morning, because we live in a day that you can find a a book or a blog post on gospel-centered almost anything. If you want to bake Uh, gospel-centered muffins to the glory of God. You can probably find a blog article or something on that. Everything gets the uh, adjective gospel-centered on the front of it. Um, We need to know how to think rightly about being gospel-centered in our counseling. And so what I have here, um, an outline for this morning, is five potential pitfalls of so-called gospel-centered counseling, five potential pitfalls of gospel-centered counseling and their solutions. We'll talk about those solutions as well. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, because we're going to find ourselves in 1 Thessalonians. Our small group has been going through 1 Thessalonians. It's been a joy to be in that book as much as we have. And an interesting thing about 1 Thessalonians, you might often hear it said that Uh, the gospel writers, the New Testament writers, when they always start with the indicatives of the gospel or the indicatives for Christians, things that are just generally true, and then they move on to the instruction in the latter half of the book. Uh, And so you get the first half, similar to Romans, what we're studying, chapters 1 through 11, gospel, gospel, gospel truth. (laughs) And then you get 12 to 16 or 15, is the application. Well, 1 Thessalonians doesn't fit that model. There are things that are generally true about Christians, and Paul does front load the encouragement, but something interesting about 1 Thessalonians is Paul really doesn't spend any time unpacking the gospel. He's writing to a church 
where the gospel is actually assumed. He knows what they believe because he's the one who taught them. He got run out of town by persecutors, and he was so concerned after a time not knowing, were we effective? Are they still clinging to what we taught them? He sent Timothy back. Timothy goes, is encouraged, gets the report, and brings it back to Paul and says, good news. They are standing fast. And so much so, y'all have even heard about their faith going forth and the word spreading from Thessalonica. And so this was a healthy church, good church, effective church, obedient church. Paul actually doesn't spend any time unpacking the gospel. It's assumed. He mentions it maybe a handful of times and draws implications from it uh, in his instruction. And so we'll talk a little bit about, I think that we'll talk about 1 Thessalonians uh, much in our time today. And I think that 1 Thessalonians is actually, it offers an excellent corrective to the pitfalls in gospel-centered counseling that we'll, that we'll discuss today, that book itself. You'll notice, I tried to give a lot of notes this week um, and just include a lot of what I have in my notes for you so that you don't have to do so much writing and hopefully we can uh, move a little bit quickly uh, through these because um, you aren't writing as much. And with each of these pitfalls, what I'm calling pitfalls or wrong ways to, to think about the gospel in our counseling, I've tried to include a lot of quotes. So that's why you'll see quotes from uh, Puritans and older theologians, because what I really want us to see is that if you've done much reading nowadays and read gospel-centered material uh, and you've come across any of these pitfalls, um, these won't sound foreign to you. But what the quotes will demonstrate is that older theologians didn't actually think like much of what we're hearing today, Okay. What, we're gonna, what I'm going to put forth is not new, okay, as a, as a way to fix people's problems and address the human heart. And that's why you've got a wealth of quotes throughout the outline. So each of these five points that we'll look at in our outline will include these uh, elements, and you'll see these as well. First, it'll include a summary of the wrong way to utilize the gospel in counseling. That's what you'll see, Summary. First, number two, it'll include the solution to that wrong practice or the corrective for that wrong way of thinking. And then after we talk about a summary of these views, a solution to them, then thirdly, we'll, talk, we'll look at a scriptural example of how Paul counseled the church in Thessalonica in this letter of 1 Thessalonians. And so five points. Each includes three subpoints, a summary, a solution, and scripture from 1 Thessalonians. That makes sense? All right, here we go. The first pitfall of gospel-centered counseling is first to misunderstand or misunderstanding God's chief end in the gospel. Misunderstanding God's chief end in the gospel. What this Pitfall basically can be summarized as is in counseling, the gospel can be taught as if its chief end is man's benefit. You can think as a counselor, this person in front of me is hurting. I need to make sure that they know God's love for them. Or this person is grieved by their sin. I need to remind them that God has declared him righteous. I need to remind 
this person that he will never see the wrath of God. Now, those are certainly good things in counseling. I hope that you have found yourself doing those very things that I just mentioned. Uh, but the solution uh, to, this, to, to holding this wrongly is to remember and teach that the gospel was accomplished primarily because God loves his own glory, because he longs to be worshipped, not primarily to benefit man. To put it another way, if saving man did not result in the glory and worship of God, God would not have saved a single individual. If glorifying God, if, if, if what glorifies God most was not to save anybody, God would not have saved a single soul. The reason that he chose to save people is because he received glory for saving them. And those whom God chooses not to save, to do what Eric just preached on today and raise to life, those souls that God chooses sovereignly not to do that with, it's because in his infinite, incomprehensible wisdom, that is what brings him the most glory period, is to choose to then, instead of make them a vessel of mercy, to determine some as vessels of wrath. If we forget God's primary goal in saving sinners through Christ in the gospel, we will eventually replace God's glory with the good or glory of man. I love John Murray's quote in uh, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. He says, God is love. We all love that truth. He says, but the supreme object of that love is himself. And because he loves himself supremely, he cannot suffer what belongs to the integrity of his character and glory to be compromised or curtailed. That is the reason for the propitiation or wrath-bearing substitute. God appeases his own holy wrath in the cross of Christ in order that the purpose of his love to lost men may be accomplished in accordance with and to the vindication of all the perfections that constitute his glory. Smedley said it this way in his sermon in 2019, Missions Must Be Christological. It is God's desire to be known for his love and compassion and mercy to sinners that motivates him to save us from the wrath we deserve. That is what is motivating God to put his own glory and mercy and forgiveness on display that motivates him to then save sinners. And if you haven't heard that entire five sermon series where we established our philosophy of missions, do your soul good and go look it up online and listen to all five sermons. You will be thoroughly encouraged. Where do we see this very principle uh, in 1 Thessalonians in the way Paul taught the Thessalonians? Look at chapter 1, verse 9. Well, actually, verses, we'll start at verse 8 for a little context. Paul is rejoicing over them, he says, in chapter 1, verse 8, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves, those people who receive word from, from about the Thessalonians' faith, they report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how, here's what they did at the instruction of Paul, 
Turn to God from idols to do what? Serve a living and true God. In verse 10, and to do something else. Wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. What's the point? When Paul came into Thessalonica, the gospel that Paul preached did not lead the Thessalonians to primarily feel better about themselves. It didn't put forth a view of God that said what God loves most is you Thessalonians and you exist uh, for your own good or glory. Um, this gospel's primary, person is, uh, primary purpose is to solve your marriage or to fix your disorderly eating habits or to resolve the anxiety you feel in life. The primary purpose of the gospel we see in these verses resulted in what they did. They put away idols. They stopped worshiping one thing and turned to do two other things. Serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. Serve and wait. Those are worship words that we talked about last week. Serve and wait. That means in their service, they begin to worship God by acknowledging that he was Lord, he was their authority, and he was worthy of their service and labor. And they begin to wait for Jesus, which is a reference to being rescued from the wrath to come. And all that means is there was a future reality that they had no way of proving, that Jesus was going to come and rescue them from coming wrath. And they waited for Jesus, which is an acknowledgement that they were believing God about the future. They counted God as trustworthy when he said wrath is coming. They worshiped God by serving and waiting. And so Paul's gospel resulted primarily in the worship of God. And we must then do the same in our counseling. Pitfall number two. Assuming that the gospel is all that is needed in counseling. Assuming that the gospel is all that is needed in counseling. A summary of this view in counseling, presupposing that the gospel is the solution to any and all counseling issues. The gospel is the solution. Nowadays, many Christians seem to be increasingly a sola gospel. They've made a, a six sola Uh, making the gospel into uh, all kinds of things, a hermeneutical lens, uh, a pattern for preaching, a parenting paradigm, and a key for counseling. The gospel is not any of those things. The gospel is a message to be believed that that scripture speaks of. It is not the only thing that scripture speaks of. And so the solution for this is to actually utilize the whole counsel of God in counseling, especially the gospel. But the whole counsel of God is available to us. 2 Timothy 2, or excuse me, 3, 16 and 17 tell us that that's what the word of God is good for. <laughs> Not just the gospel, but the whole counsel of God. And God intends all things to be an occasion for worship, not just the gospel. In Genesis 1 and 2, those aren't, those aren't gospel passages. We don't get a gospel. There's not even a need for the gospel in Genesis 1, 1 and 2 because man has a right standing with God. And yet creation and all six days and the creation of man, those are all reasons to worship. Adam worshiped God when he saw Eve. Marriage was a cause for worship. And so not just the gospel. And we need to, we need to consider those things in our counseling. 
Is the person sitting in front of us, do they need to hear what truth of the gospel do they need to hear perhaps? Or is there another truth that they need to hear? There are all kinds of doctrines and events in scripture that are not the gospel. That doesn't mean they have nothing to do with the gospel. That doesn't mean they're completely separate from Christ crucified and resurrected. But they're not the gospel message. Things like creation that we've already mentioned. Things like the exodus. David's numbering the people and choosing his punishment from God. That actually, Tom and I talked earlier this week. That's the passage we went to. (laughs) Remnant theology that Smith's been covering. The gospel, though. Things like uh, remnant theology that Smith's been covering in, in Romans 9 through 11. They're not separate from the gospel, but they're not the gospel. And the whole counsel of God, all 66 books, as counselors, is available to us. And so we should utilize them. Um, We see this in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4 and chapter 5, where Paul actually counseled the Thessalonians and instructed them to counsel one another with not necessarily gospel realities, but realities that have more to do with eschatology. When it came to warning them about sexual immorality and comforting one another, the people in Thessalonica who were grieving without hope, it wasn't primarily a rehashing of justification that they needed to hear. Because that's not what Paul goes into detail in 1 Thessalonians. Look at chapter 4. <laughs> what to do with eschatology? Look at in chapter 4, specifically that has to do with eschatology. Look at verse 6. He says, Make sure that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, that's pertaining to sexual immorality. Why? Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, just as we told you before and solemnly warned you. God avenges himself on the sexually immoral. That is, I believe, a a reference to the wrath to come that he's already been talking about. If you're going to practice what God qualifies as sexual immorality, you need to know God will avenge himself very soon on those people. Turn away from sexual immorality. Don't, Don't practice that. That's a reality that has more to do with eschatology than the gospel. And then he does uh, something similar in verses 13 and then the day of the Lord. Verse 10 of chapter 5 where he talks about uh, the rapture and then the day of the Lord. Those, those aren't gospel uh, realities specifically, not that they're divorced from the gospel. They obviously have much to do with Christ crucified. You, don't, you will see the wrath of God if you don't believe the gospel. And so those are, are linked, but they're not the same is the point. You've got quotes there from, from Arthur Pink and, and Jonathan Edwards that would be helpful to revisit when you get a chance. The third pitfall of gospel-centered counseling would be rushing too quickly to the gospel for comfort. Rushing too quickly to the gospel for comfort. In counseling, the counselor might rush immediately and indiscriminately to comfort with the gospel. To think beforehand and just presuppose whatever, it doesn't matter what counseling issue I encounter today, this person needs comfort with the gospel. That would be a wrong assumption. 
Because Paul actually tells us in chapter 5 of verse 14 that there are different categories of people who then need different things from their would-be counselors. Look at chapter 5, verse 14. We urge you, brethren, comfort the unruly. Is that what he says? What does he say to do for people who are unruly? Admonish. They need an admonishment. That doesn't mean unloving, harsh, because he's going to finish this saying, be patient with everyone. But those who are unruly, we see need admonishment. Those who are faint-hearted need encouragement or comfort. And those who are weak need help. So there's different needs for different people. And so really the corrective for us here is in counseling, we need to discern what is the best use of the gospel for this specific person at this specific time for this specific issue. And that could be the best use of the gospel or whatever else God's word has to say. And and, and really, this requires discernment from us as counselors. There's not a one-size-fits-all counseling methodology. Scripture actually doesn't give us that. Um, I heard a a, a counselor who I actually respect a great deal um, talk about this being one of the... um, one of the things that's needed in the biblical counseling movement is a systematized uh, pattern for, for counselors to follow. Not sure everything he meant by that, but from the, what I heard, I couldn't disagree more. Our counsel needs to be able to take as many different shapes as there are passages of scripture to counsel from. Our counseling needs to vary, be able to vary as much as Scripture itself because Scripture tells us that it's all good for life and godliness. Uh, Jesus actually told Satan this in Matthew 4, 4. Man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. <laughs> every word. And so if somebody needs to hear Zechariah 14, you better know Zechariah 14. <laughs> If somebody needs to hear Jude verse 1, you better know Jude verse 1. Now, that doesn't mean memorize the Bible before you start counseling. But what that does mean is only counsel from what you know and realize that the more you know, the better you are able to counsel. And so sometimes comfort may be required, but that shouldn't be the automatic assumption is that with the gospel, people need comfort automatically. I love uh, what John Owen says this, uh, ladies in the, I think, Kovac small group, y'all are reading Mortification of Sin, you'll get here eventually. John Owen has a tremendous chapter on not speaking peace to yourself too quickly. That, I, where was that eight years ago? Somebody should have handed me Mortification of Sin eight years ago when I was counseling poorly uh, and just reminding my roommates of the gospel when sometimes they needed something else. But here's what he says. He says, bring thy lust to the gospel, not for relief, but for further conviction of its guilt. Look on him whom thou hast pierced and be in bitterness. Say to thy soul, what have I done? What love, what mercy, what blood, what grace have I despised and trampled on? Is this the return I make to the Father for his love, to the Son for his blood, to the Holy Ghost for his grace? 
Do I thus requite the Lord? Have I defiled the heart that Christ died to wash, which was the blessed spirit, which the blessed spirit has chosen to dwell in? And can I keep myself out of the dust? What can I say to the to the dear Lord Jesus? How shall I hold up my head with any boldness before him? Do I account communion with him of so little value that for this vile lust's sake, I have scarce left him any room in my heart? How shall I escape if I neglect so great salvation? In the meantime, what shall I say to the Lord? Love, mercy, grace, goodness, peace, joy, consolation. I have despised them all and esteemed them as a thing of naught that I might harbor a lust in my heart. Use the gospel for that purpose sometimes and first. And this actually, so you know, comes just before Owen's next point to consider the benefits of the gospel in particular. This must not be done without or before the gospel and God's goodness uh, to us loads us with a guilt of our sin is the point. Um, And so uh, Owen actually does eventually turn the corner and says, hey, don't stay there. Turn and be comforted by the gospel. Uh, but not to the detriment of considering your guilt before God. Number four, a a fourth pitfall in gospel-centered counseling is drawing unbiblical implications from the gospel. Drawing unbiblical implications from the gospel. The counselor comes to unbiblical conclusions in, in this pitfall about how believers should live in light of the gospel, uh, and they're just unbiblical c- conclusions about what the gospel should be doing in, in us. This is something I was introduced early on in my Christian walk. I was told, hey, there's this great doctrine of expiation. God has removed your guilt and removed the shame of your sin, expiation. And so you no longer need to experience guilt and shame for your sin. Don't feel that anymore. That's not what the Bible says. <laughs> Romans 6.21, you can write Romans 6.21 down if it's not in your notes. Uh, Paul tells the Romans, Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? Conviction actually, or conversion, produced shame about things they didn't find shameful in the past. So should the Christian experience shame? Yeah, it's actually a part of conversion. It's in the Christian's DNA to be ashamed of what is shameful. You should be ashamed of your sin. We should be. And yet there's a right way to hold that. We don't wallow in it and stay there forever. But if you're not ashamed of it, then you're coaching your conscience to ignore its guilt before God. You actually do have guilt. And if you don't actually have any more guilt uh, before God, that's not what justification is. Justification is God is not counting your guilt against you. But you are guilty, actually, in time. You are guilty of the sin that you're committing. God has unloaded the penalty for it on Christ. But if you're actually not guilty, then that means you don't need to repent. And if you're actually not guilty, then what did Christ die for in the first place? There's all kind of problems that come from that view. But we should avoid coming to unbiblical implications about the gospel in our counsel. Uh, one article that appeared on Desiring God in 2016 
about seven things to do after uh, looking at pornography, the, the writer actually says, fight self-hatred. Don't let your good intuitive hatred of sin let you hate yourself. Be patient with yourself because God is patient with you. That's drawing unbiblical implications from the gospel. We're never told to forgive ourselves, love ourselves, be patient with ourselves, be merciful toward ourselves just because God is. And so the corrective for this is to temper our thinking and counsel regarding the implications of the gospel with what else scripture teaches. We should be tempered in our counsel with what else scripture teaches, especially those instances when God draws out the implications of the gospel for us through the writers of scripture. We don't have to actually figure out all the implications for ourselves because God does that for us. Um, 1 Thessalonians 1.10, uh, 4.14, 5.9 and 10 are good examples of that. In those passages, Paul expounds biblical implications from the doctrine of Christ crucified and resurrected. He actually mentions that Christ died and rose in those passages that I just mentioned. But he doesn't actually unpack them or revisit justification what he does in those three instances is the implications that Paul draws out is that the, first Thess- or the Thessalonian believers were waiting for the same Jesus who came back from the dead in 110. Uh, he reminds them that since they already believed that Jesus died and rose again in 414, they should also believe that Jesus would bring back dead believers and resurrect them as well. Hey, you believe Jesus died and rose. Don't you know God will bring with him believers too? Those who have fallen asleep in Christ, he'll raise them, bring with him, with them, excuse me, bring with Jesus those fallen asleep believers to resurrection. And then another implication that he draws out in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 5 in 1 Thessalonians is that one purpose for Jesus' death was so that church age believers who died before Jesus' coming, and church-age believers who were still alive and remained at his coming would all together live with him once he resurrected them and rescued them from the coming wrath. Those are our biblical implications. Those are instances when the biblical writers just draw out the implications for us. And so we should uh, have our radars up when we read scripture for those and utilize those in counseling. And then lastly, uh, this fifth pitfall is teaching only the indicatives, or as we call them, grace realities of the gospel in our counseling. Teaching only the indicatives, only the grace realities, the comforting truths of the gospel. Things like justification, imputation, redemption, reconciliation, adoption, regeneration. Those are glorious truths. Should we find ourselves revisiting those in our counseling and counseling one another with those truths? Well, yeah, we should. The biblical writers did. So we should find ourselves discussing those things, teaching those things, reminding one another of those things in our counseling. But the point is, they're not the only things we should be doing with the gospel because they're not the only things that God did with the gospel. They're not the only things the biblical writers did with the gospel. We should remind our uh, counselees of what a true or what is true about the gospel and as well how they're obligated to live under Christ's lordship as a result of believing the gospel. And so whatever the occasion calls for, this, is, this calls for wisdom, right, in counseling. God doesn't tell us, hey, 
your uh, small group member is coming to you with this problem, here's what you need to say to them. He's given us his word. And if we are having the word richly dwelling in us, as Colossians 3.16 says, then we should prayerfully, dependently uh, seek to counsel one another uh, as we are walking in step with the Spirit. And so sometimes we would do just as Paul does in 1 Thessalonians. He does this multiple times in chapter 4 as well as in chapter 5. The book just ends with a litany of commands. You are already believers in the gospel. I have warned you at one point in chapter 4. Paul wasn't afraid to warn believers who had believed the gospel. So that's fair game in counseling. Uh, And he just went through tons of commands, I think all in light of the fact that Jesus is coming to rescue you uh, from the coming wrath. Therefore, live like this. And then you have tons of commands that he gives, imperatives, uh, to end the book, really. And so in our counseling, we should be uh, eager to discern what's best in this moment. And so there you have five pitfalls to avoid in your your gospel-centeredness. Be gospel-centered in your counseling. Be gospel-centered. Be gospel-centered the way God is gospel-centered in your counseling. And so I hope that that that's helpful. We've got about five minutes for questions. Any questions? Yes, Ken. So uh, just for the recording, the question is, in this counseling situation you're involved in, you have somebody who is uh, only seeing the condemnation. Um, and, and, and so you're asking what to do with that. What do you run in, in terms of what we've been discussing? Um, is this person professing to be a believer? Uh, confused, believes, maybe apostate. Okay, confused. Maybe believes, maybe is apostate. Uh, well, here's how, uh, and we'll, I'm so glad you asked this is a perfect question to, to say, hey, come next week. Uh, you know, as the counselor, that that's not all the Bible says. This person, in this instance, is refusing to see, or rather, better yet, believe what else the Bible says. Um, And so the Bible not only talks about condemnation before God, but there are glorious gospel realities uh, about God's forgiveness and forgiveness being purchased. And really what, in that instance, when the person who only believes God's condemnation, it would be tempting in some instances to say, hey, I need to just assure you of, of what's true about you in the gospel. And hey, look at all these great things that God has done in the gospel. Well, God has done great things in the gospel, 
and he has done great things for a specific group of people, and they're believers, people who by faith lay hold of those promises in the gospel. And in this person's instance, without knowing all the details of that counseling situation, the person needs to actually do what all believers are called to do, and that is believe God. Don't only believe what God has said about his wrath. Believe what he's also said about how to attain forgiveness. Believe what he says in Exodus 34, 6, and 7, that he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, right? Believe his mercy and grace and that he's slow to anger and abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so the person who refuses to believe those truths, the other side, so to speak, um, may just need to hear that and, and may repent eventually. Um, and maybe if they never come to, to believe those truths, about the other side of what they're not believing, then maybe they're not believers. And so the real test would be, am I going to turn a corner and worship the God who forgives, not only claim that God is wrath? Any other questions? Yes, Rob. That's right. Yeah. Yep. I could never forgive myself. And, and really, the person who is choosing to hold on to condemnation instead of uh, receiving and believing in God's forgiveness, it is, it is pride. It's the pride of unbelief on one hand. I'm, ref- I'm refusing to believe God. Um, it's exalting myself as judge because I'm refusing to, to uh, lay hold of God's forgiveness, I'm choosing to be judge and condemn myself, hang on to condemnation. Um, it is pride. And the person doesn't need to feel better about themselves. They need to feel worse about the pride of hanging on to condemnation. And if they do, it'll produce a godly sorrow that Second Corinthians 7 says leads to repentance and life. One more question. Whenever I don't get questions, I just say, hey, must have been really clear. (laughs) Nothing else? Going once? All right. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, If you have any other questions um, that you think of later, uh, feel free to email me, omri at gbcaz.org. Thank you all for being here. You're dismissed.